Good morning and welcome. If you are in our foyer, then please uh, come right on in. Kyle Butt of Apologetics Press will be our speaker again today. He'll be sharing in our Bible class time on the fruits of atheism. He'll be our preacher during our uh, worship assembly, during our sermon time, protecting our children's faith. Really looking forward uh, to hearing Kyle. If you were here yesterday, you know uh, what a blessing that we are in for. And so I am super excited uh, to get to introduce to you again today Kyle Butt of Apologetics Press. Billy was a great guy, really. He, and this is not this is not about you actually, Billy. Of all Bill, uh, he was on a college campus and people liked him. There was one challenge with Billy. He was just a head. That's all he was. He didn't have a body. Didn't have arms. Didn't have legs. Didn't have anything. And he rolled everywhere he went. That's how he got around, ambulated. He would roll to classes. He would roll to the cafeteria and one day he saw this girl that he thought she was just beautiful and he rolled up to her looked up at her and said hey will you go out with me and she said you know Billy I think you have a great personality really do but you just don't have a body and I just can't go out with you but if ever you do get a body then I will be glad more than happy to go out with you he said oh okay so he rolls back to his dorm room that night and he's just wishing wish I had a body. I just so wish I had a body. Well, the next morning, sure enough, he wakes up and he has one. He's got a body, but he doesn't really know it at first. And so he flops out of bed in a roll like he normally does and realizes, man, I've, I've got arms and legs. Oh, this is awesome. I'll get to go out with that girl that said once I got a body, she'd go out with me. So all day long, he's having a little trouble getting adjusted because he'll break into a roll and then realize, oh, I don't have to roll anymore. And so he walks, he said, well, he sees the girl across the road and makes him kind of nervous. He's moving over toward her, but because of his nerves, he breaks into a roll, causes him to go a little bit slower across the road than he thought he was going to, and he gets hit by a Mack truck, kills him. Kills him dead. And the moral of the story is to quit while you're ahead. That's the moral of the story. Now, maybe that's what I should have done with my jokes, is just quit while I was ahead. I'm not sure I ever was ahead, and so we'll leave it at that. Thank you all for being here. It's been such a wonderful weekend, and I have thoroughly enjoyed it. I want to thank the Monahans for getting to stay with them. We've had a great time. Had a wonderful cookout last night with the, I'm going to call it the Young Married Group, and it was just a lot of fun. Had about 37, 40 people out there, and just have so felt at home this weekend with you as the West Irwin Church of Christ, and just had a great time. And I want to thank you all for that. There's something called an implication. And an implication is something that's not stated explicitly in a statement or an idea, but the following idea forces this to be true. Even though it's not stated, you can know it for a fact, and what is stated forces the next idea to be true, whether you admit it or not. So an implication is when you have something that is said, like in the book of Revelation, there's a statement that is made that in heaven, the gate does not close by day, 
and there is no night there. Okay, so what's the implication? It's not stated. Explicitly, you don't read this statement, but you have some information that's been given to you that implies something that is very real. It's just as true, and it's just as as solid as the two statements that are given, but it's not stated. Well, the not stated implication of the gate doesn't shut by day and there's no night, the implied truth is so the gate never shuts. Well, the text doesn't say the gate never shuts. It says it doesn't shut by day and there's no night. And so the implication is the gate never shuts. And it's just as true as the two things that were stated. Now, ideas have implications. And so if you believe certain things, then that implies that you are forced to accept, if you're being reasonable, other things that come along with that. Now, sometimes a person will be unreasonable and they'll accept certain things and they will deny the implications of those or they'll accept certain things and they'll recognize the implications but say, I don't want to live like that or I don't want to behave in a way that would put those things into practice. But what are the implications of the belief in God? Well, if you believe that there is a God and you believe that God created humans in his own image, then that implies that all humans have inherent value It implies that if God communicates to people, then we are bound by God's authority to do what he says. It implies several things. What if you don't believe in God? What if you say there's no God, there's no soul, there's no spirit, there is nothing supernatural? What are the implications of unbelief and stating that there is no God, therefore what? Well, what we're going to look at this morning are the implications of atheism. What happens when a person says there's no God? What does that mean for the value of human life? What does that mean for a moral standard? What does that mean when a person says there is no God? What are the implications of that? Well, there was a man by the name of George Walser who thought that the implications of atheism would form a society that was the best that the world had ever seen. And so his stated mission when he started Liberal Missouri was to show the world that if you would not waste time on religion, if you would not think that you had a soul that was going to live after this life and you didn't think that there was a God or heaven or hell, then your life would be the best possible life it could be. And so he started this town, Liberal Missouri, in the 1880s, and he said, we're going to show the world that if you believe there's no God and act like that, it will be the best possible society that you can imagine. And you see Liberal Missouri here. This is a sign from when I visited Liberal Missouri. There's Walser Avenue for George Walser, who was the founder of Liberal Missouri. There's Darwin Drive, named after Charles Darwin, of course, giving him credit, thinking that, hey, this Darwinism idea that we discussed yesterday was an idea that would work well with his atheistic philosophy. And Thomas Paine Drive, there is one. And then Robert Ingersoll Lane, he has. So basically naming this after humanist and atheist and people of that sort. Well, what happened at Liberal, Missouri, when he said, here are the things you cannot believe if you're going to be a charter member. You cannot believe that there's a God. You cannot believe in heaven. You cannot believe in hell. You can't believe in anything spiritual. If you're going to be a charter member of Liberal Missouri, you have to believe that this world is all that there is. Because 
He said, I feel like you will not waste your time thinking about the future and you'll spend all your time wanting to make this world a better place. That was his idea. Do you think it worked? Well, you don't have to even form an opinion on that necessarily insofar as we know exactly what happened to liberal Missouri. This is a man by the name of Clark Braden. Now, we sent off to the county seat there at Liberal and received this photocopy of the actual 1885 article by this man named Clark Braden. Now, if I understand it correctly, he was a member of the Lord's Church and traveled around and did debates and things of that nature and was a traveling preacher and decided he wanted to go into liberal Missouri and see how this infidel experiment... Now, you can't really read that, I probably. It's, it's very small, but an infidel experiment, the colony of liberal in this state, a practical... I don't even know what that says, in whatever. Here's what he said. Okay, I just went to liberal... And it's terrible. He said, everybody cusses, all the children and all the women and the men. He said, most everybody there is drunk all of the time. The hotels are brothels, and the moral compass of the place is so absolutely messed up that they don't have any concept of right and wrong. And they would sell their property if they could, but the property value has sunk so low because nobody wants to be there. Everybody's hateful. Everybody does terrible things to everybody else. And it's the worst possible place you could ever think about to live. So the hotel owner that he said the hotels have become brothels decided he was going to sue Clark Braden and sued him at the time in 1885 for $25,000. And in 1885, $25,000 was a considerable sum, would be probably equivalent of several million today. Took the case to court. The case was immediately thrown out because it was so obvious that what Clark Braden had said was true. It was not libel. It was not slander. It was exactly what he had witnessed in liberal Missouri. And the man who sued him had to pay all of the court costs, and the case never came before any judge or anything because it was so obviously wrong. A failed experiment. Well, it's interesting that George Walser, after starting Liberal Missouri, then later came in contact with the teachings of Jesus Christ, started looking at them more seriously, and realized he had made a terrible mistake. That that idea of unbelief would never form a society that was one where anybody would want to live, that the implications of unbelief as he saw them play out in his town that he started, Liberal Missouri, were so morally devastating that it would never be something that any person who had a choice would want to do, live among an entire group of people that doesn't. Well, that doesn't recognize certain things that only come with the idea of a God. And so, as you drive about 45 minutes away from liberal Missouri, what's interesting there is in liberal, all of the graves are in a big circle. And right in the middle, there's an empty spot where George Walser was supposed to be buried. But he was not buried in liberal Missouri because he said he did not want to be buried among a bunch of people who did not believe in God because he 
became a believer and became a person who valued the teachings of Jesus Christ. And so 45 minutes away from Liberal, Missouri, you can find the grave of George Walser. And as you read George Walser's tombstone, it says a poet, lawyer, and philanthropist who decided after his failed experiment, atheism socially doesn't work. And there are good reasons for that. Now let me stop you right here and ask a simple question. We're not talking about atheist. We're talking about atheism. And there's a very big difference between the two. Let me explain to you what I mean. Is it true that there are lots of people who call themselves Christians who don't act like that? Sadly, it is. There are people who say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. Yes, I love Jesus Christ. Yes, I follow Jesus Christ. But then when you look at their Monday through Saturday behavior, they do not behave like Jesus Christ said to behave. They do not treat one another with respect. They, they do not treat other people like they want to be treated. They do not avoid every form of sin. They don't act like Christians. Now, does that say anything about the validity of Jesus Christ and his system for life? No, it just says there are some people who call themselves Christians. They don't act like it. Lots of times when I deal with skeptics and unbelievers, they will say, well, yeah, what about the Spanish Inquisition? What about the Crusades where people who called themselves Christians went over to the Holy Lands and killed Muslims to take back? And I say, yeah, what about those? And they say, well, those were Christians. I said, no, those were people who called themselves Christians. But they weren't behaving like Jesus Christ said to behave. Did you ever see Jesus Christ pick up any type of sword and determine that it would be a great idea to go anywhere and physically fight anybody for some land? No, you didn't. In fact, if you would go to Jesus' statement before Pilate where he said, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my people would fight. But I have a different kind of kingdom that you don't understand. It's a spiritual kingdom, and you don't win it with a physical iron or metal sword. You win it with a spiritual sword of the Spirit. And so when those people who were involving themselves in the Crusades or the Spanish Inquisitions were acting like, were saying they were Christians, they weren't acting like it. Okay, so you understand the difference between a Christian and Christ idea and Christ philosophy. Some people call themselves Christians and don't live it. Now, thankfully, I think the world gets to see a lot of people who call themselves Christians and do live those teachings out in their life. And I think lots of times that's one of the primary reasons why they want to know more about Jesus and become Christians because they work with some of you. And they see how honest and hardworking and how respectful and loving you are. And they think... Where I am, I don't have anything that would give me that kind of purpose and philosophy. I want that. And so they see your Christian lives and they glorify your God in heaven, which is exactly what Jesus said needs to happen in the Christian life. But we need to understand that when I am dissecting the implications of atheism, yes, they are the implications of atheism, but not all atheists would put them into practice. You understand the difference? Because there are some atheists that are very moral, that are very upstanding, that are very kind people, that if you were to ask them, would you ever put these kinds of implications into practice that we're going to be studying, they would say, no, 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 I would never do that. And they might never do that. But that doesn't mean that atheism doesn't imply certain things. So as we continue, let's ask the first question. What happens when people act like Christians? 
Now, this is a statement from a man named Bertrand Russell who wrote an article titled, Why I'm Not a Christian. Not a friend of Christianity at all. Not trying to help Christianity in any way. He was just writing about ideas that have helped humanity. And he says, you know what, I'm not a Christian. I don't think you should be a Christian. I don't believe Jesus was the Son of God. And Jesus taught about hell and some stuff that I don't agree with. But, he says, when people act like Christians, here's what happens. And as you read it, Christianity, as soon as it conquered the state, put an end to the gladiatorial shows. He said, not because they were cruel, but because they were idolatrous, although I would probably argue with that. Uh, The result, however, was to diminish the widespread education in cruelty by which the Roman populace was degraded. He said, you know, when Christians started really having an influence in Roman society, they cut out gladiatorial shows and a bunch of the horrible cruelty that was going on in Rome. He said, then Christianity did much to soften the lot of slaves. It established charity on large scales. It started hospitals. Now, notice his statement here. Although the great majority of Christians failed lamentably in Christian charity, the ideal remained alive and in every age inspired some notable saints. In a new form, it passed over modern liberalism and remains the inspiration of much that is most hopeful in our somber world. He said, you know, a lot of people call themselves Christians, didn't act like it, but Christianity in and of itself, when people follow it, remains the inspiration behind much that is most hopeful in our somber world. Now, this guy wrote an essay titled, Why I'm Not a Christian. But he says, you know what? When you see people who are acting like Christians, it's fascinating. If they have an influence anywhere, they make the world a better place. They start hospitals and they do things that are kind and good to people. Wouldn't you like to live in a society where every person looked out not only for his own interests but also for the interests of others? Where everybody didn't do things out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind they esteemed others better than themselves. Wouldn't it be great if you actually lived in a society where people did unto other people what they would want done to them? Where they did not extract vengeance themselves, but they forgave people. Wouldn't you want to live in a society where brotherly love continued and you did all that you did with love and everybody did the very best that they could do in everything that they could do and they treated each other like family? That would be a great place. And Bertrand Russell says, you know what? If people really did act like Christians, it'd be an awesome place. Now, sometimes they don't, unfortunately, but if they did, if they put into practice the Christian principles that Jesus Christ taught, the world would be a better place. And I would go so far as to say the world would be the best possible place it could be. But what happens if you put atheistic implications into practice? The idea that there is no God. Well, we're going to see that as well as we continue. The first thing you're going to see is that atheism cannot answer moral questions at all. Now, that's interesting because lots of times people who don't believe in God will come to the Bible and say, well, God's immoral for doing this or that, or that's an unloving thing to do. And they will claim that they have some moral standard by which they can measure the actions of the God of the Bible. But when you really look into their writings and recognize the implication of atheism, you realize that there's no moral standard. There's no place on which they can stand and say, well, this is right and this is wrong. And they know that, and they recognize it. And if you find them and catch them in the more candid moments, they will explain that to you. 
as you listen to William Provine's speech that he gave at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, he said naturalistic evolution has clear consequences. Now that word consequences is what we're dealing with called implications that Charles Darwin understood perfectly. Number one, no God's worth having exists. No life after death exists. Now look at number three. No ultimate foundation for ethics exists. Now here's why that's easy to see. Let's say you don't believe in God and you believe that all humans evolved from some primordial slime some 4.8 billion years ago from a little warm chemical soup somewhere and you look at the animal kingdom and ask the simple question, okay, is a lion culpable morally for killing an antelope? Do you say he is a murderer and a thief and a whatever for killing another animal? Well, no, you would never do that. There's the Amazonian slave-making ants who march into an ant colony that is not the same kind of ants as them, and they literally subjugate the entire ant colony and force them to do the work so that the Amazonian slave-making ants don't have to do it. Do you then say, okay, that group of ants is immoral, and we need to bring them before a tribunal and put them in prison? You don't. And you never would because they're animals. You just don't at any point say, okay, these animals are somehow morally culpable for things. But now what you will then see is that according to the atheistic Darwinian idea, that's all you are too. You're just an animal. And so at what point do you go from the lion is not morally culpable for that, but the human is if you just think every organism is an animal on the planet? You see, the implication of there being no God is that there's no image of God in any living organism. And so if there's no image of God, what makes you more valuable than the lion? Or what makes you different than the lion? Because the lion doesn't have some type of moral standard, and so why would humans? And so as you can read from these writings, Charles Darwin said, A man who has no assured and ever-present belief in the existence of a personal God or future existence of retribution and reward can have for his rule of life, as far as I can see, only to follow those impulses and instincts which are the strongest or which seem to him the best ones. He says, look, if you don't believe in God and you don't think there's a heaven, you don't think there's a hell, how do you behave? All I can say is it looks like you just follow the instincts and impulses which seem the best to you. You're at a steak place and you're really hungry, hadn't eaten all day. You're bigger than the person that's sitting at the table next to you. You order a 24-ounce T-bone. The person next to you orders the 12-ounce. When yours comes out, it looks like about a 6-ounce. When his comes out, it looks like about a 48-ounce. You're starving and you're bigger than him. You look over and you say, hey, give me that steak. He says, no, I'm not giving you my steak. They brought it to me. You say, yeah, but I feel like eating that. He says, I don't care what you feel like. I'm eating it. Yes, but I'm bigger than you, and I'm hungrier than you, and so I'm taking your steak. You can't do that. Well, if you're bigger, and you feel like punching him in the face and taking his steak, and that's the strongest impulse you've got, what does Darwin say about that situation? He says, I can't say you're wrong. I can say, if it were me, I'd try to hire a bodyguard so you couldn't do that to me. I could say, I'm not sure that will be the most beneficial to this restaurant, and so they might like to assure people that they won't get punched in the face in their restaurant. Hold on, that's not the questions we're asking. What we're asking is, is it morally wrong for me to punch you in the face and take your steak? 
know, I mean, is that how you felt the strongest? I, I was hoping you would feel more strongly about sitting down and being nice to the person. Yeah, but I didn't. Well, I can't say you're wrong then. Because atheism doesn't give you a moral foundation for any type of this is right and this is wrong. Dan Barker said, there are no actions in and of themselves that are always absolutely right or wrong. I can think of an exception in every case. You can't name an action that's always right or wrong. Now, he made this debate, and he made this statement in a debate with Peter Payne in 2005 on this very subject. Can you have a moral foundation without a God? Basically, Barker says there's no real foundation. You just decide according to each situation. And so afterward, it was at a university setting, a student came up to him and said, okay, from the microphone, would it be okay to rape a person? Would that be morally all right? Barker said, well, you know, there are some situations that are just kind of so outlandish, it might never happen, but yes, yes. If, let's say, and he thought of a hypothetical, he said, let's say aliens came down and said they're going to kill all of humanity if you don't do that, then yes, you would need to do that to save humanity. Now, when I debated him in 2009, I knew he'd said that, and I thought, you know, if we could just get him to, to make more of these outlandishly immoral statements. I feel like people would want to disconnect from this idea of atheism. That was in my, I guess in my 30s there, and I thought, hey, if I can just get him to admit that he really believes that, game over. So I said, hey, did you say that? He said, yes. I said, what about two women? He said, yes. I said, what about 2,000? He said, yes. I said, what about two million? He said, I would hate myself, I would probably kill myself, but it would be my moral obligation to save humanity to do that to two million people. He said, and you would thank me because I would have saved your life. And I said, no, Dan, I would never have thanked you because this life is not all there is and when you make decisions without the entire picture, now I'm expanding on what I said, but when you make decisions where you're trying to only preserve this physical life and there's something much, much more important, then you're making immoral decisions. And I thought naively that if we could get him to admit that his philosophy, and once I say two million, well, how far does that go? What about two billion? Now, basically, what he's saying is you could do whatever you want to 49% of the population as long as it would save 51%. Now, you see what we mean then when William Provine says there's no foundation for ethics. It just happens to be whatever you decide is your highest value, and he's decided his highest value is physical life. And so whatever else you have to do to a person to save the most people's physical life, then that's how you make your decision. And it's highly immoral, and I think all of you understand that. Let me take the idea of abortion. Where in the world could you ever get the concept that it would be okay to kill an unborn child? Now, I'm going to tell you where you can't get it. It doesn't matter uh, how you look at the Bible. If you're honest, there's no possible way that you can get from the Bible that it would ever be all right to kill an unborn child. Here's why. Because... You understand that there is a difference between humans and every other living creature. Now, it just so happens you might not even know why you understand that. 
but you understand it because it is a Christian principle. Now, here's what I mean. When you look in the Old Testament and the Bible says, let us make man in our own image, in our own likeness, and so the Bible says, so he made them male and female. Well, our, under, our forefathers understood this perfectly when they said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among those rights are the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, why do you as a human have the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but the pigs that are farmed down the road are destined to be right bacon, and you are not? Well, because there's a fundamental difference between all humans and every other organism. Now, interestingly, it doesn't have anything to do with how smart you are. Thankfully, for some of us, has nothing to do with good looks or intelligence or any type of how fast you can run. You get to be valued for one reason. You are made in the image and likeness of God, and you're different from all animals. Now, what if you get rid of God? Who are you now made in? What image? Oh, you're made in the image and likeness of the primate ancestor that was before you, and that primate ancestor is made in the image and likeness of the lower mammal that was before you, and ultimately it goes back to primordial slime. And so really, where's the value? Well, what you're going to see is that when you look in the Bible, from the point of conception, every single person was recognized as a person from the point of conception, not when they were born. The Bible uses the same words to talk about children that were in utero, that were in their mother's womb, as it uses to talk about children that were born. God recognizes people from the point of conception always and makes a difference between people and animals. Now, if there's no God, then what you find out is there's no reason to value people except if they could help society or they would be more valuable physically or mentally, etc. So as you look at this, Charles Darwin said, well, there's no fundamental difference between man and the higher mammals and their mental faculties. Now here's what he's saying. If you sit beside a chimpanzee, okay, you might happen to have a higher IQ, but you're not a different kind of smart. You're just smarter. So if you're sitting beside a person this morning and you two were to take an IQ test and you happen to have 112 and the person behind, beside you might have 105, then you're smarter. Well, if you're sitting beside a chimpanzee and you take an IQ test and you happen to have 112 and the chimpanzee has a 62 or a 54 or whatever it is, well, you're not a different kind. You're just smarter. You just happen to be more intelligent than the chimpanzee. Okay, so what's the implication of that? What would that mean as it is played out? Notice, Barbara Burke says, among some animal species, infant killing appears to be a natural practice. Could it be natural for humans too? A trait inherited from our primate ancestors? I mean, after all, Charles Darwin noted in The Sin of Man that infanticide has been probably the most important of all checks on population growth throughout most of human history. She said, look, if you're just an animal and you look at the animal kingdom, animals kill their babies. My dad several years ago had a coon dog. They had gotten into some coon hunting when I was in high school. It was a lot of fun. And they bought this one coon hound that was, I think her name was Queen, and very expensive for a coon dog, but they were planning on making some money off of her because the puppies were going to have a good pedigree and they were going to be worth quite a bit of money. So Queen had 
eight puppies the first time, if I remember correctly. Oh, they were thinking, all right, eight puppies, this is great. She ate them all but one. Didn't think she could raise any more puppies than one at a time. The next litter she had, she had 12. She raised one. Okay, now, as an animal, did we take her before the tribunal and make sure she was punished for the injustice that she did to her family? No, of course you didn't. She's an animal. Well, what's Barbara Burke saying here? Well, the implication of Darwinism is you're an animal too. And animals kill their babies, and so you could kill your babies if you didn't think you had the resources to take care of it, if they weren't going to be beneficial to society, if... You see where we're going with this. Now, recognize this is not Kyle Butt making this stuff up. You know, it sounds real outlandish, and surely nobody thinks that. But this is Charles Darwin and the highest-ranking atheist in the nation, in the world, and they are admitting these things to you. Now, let me tell you why I travel the country and talk about unbelief, atheism, comparing it to God, because these beliefs are not benign beliefs that people can just hold without consequences. Now, people many times do hold them and say, yeah, that's the implication, but I would never do that. Okay, you might not. But if those are the implications, would some people, if they are saying, hey, if I believe this, then that means this, and so we might as well do this. You know, if you teach kids that they are products of animals and they come from animals and they are made in the image and likeness of animals, what will they act like? You can't help that once you teach the false idea that there's no difference between a human and an animal. Just a, a level of intelligence. Continue with me. As you look at this, Peter Singer, who's recognized as the world's leading ethicist. Uh, I say recognize the world's leading ethics. You wouldn't recognize him as such. He is an atheistic unbeliever who has climbed to the highest ranks of ethicism, meaning he is recognized by many unbelievers as the person who has the best approach to tell you how you should live, the, the best way you should live. And here's what he says. You know, if we compare a severely defective human infant with, say, a non-human animal, a dog or a pig, for example, will often find the non-human to have superior capacities. Only the fact that the defective infant is a member of the species Homo sapiens. You know, that sounds real smart. What's he saying? Only the fact that the baby is a human leads it to be treated differently than the dog or the pig. He said, you know, historically, if we've had a dog or a pig, we've done things to the dog and pig that we would never do to the human. Okay, yeah, because humans have inherent value because they're made in the image of God as per what the Bible says, and our, create, our forefathers recognize. He then says, you know what, though? If we could just get rid of this idea that species membership by itself has any value, if we can get rid of the idea that you keep a human alive just because they're human, we really start to see things as they are, he says. If we can put aside the obsolete notion of the sanctity of all human life, we may start to look at human life as it really is. Okay, well, well what, would, what would that be? Nevertheless, the main point is clear. Killing a disabled infant is not morally equivalent to killing a person. Very often, it's not wrong at all. Okay, now listen to me. This guy is recognized. I, I watched a video with Richard Dawkins and this guy, Peter Singer, on YouTube. 
Richard Dawkins, the leading atheist in the world, says to Peter Singer, you're the most moral individual that I know. Who this then says in his writings on an ethical life, do you think sometimes the spiritual powers that be look at statements like this and see the irony of such a title? Okay, Peter Singer, the world's leading ethicist, is writing on how to live right. And he says, you know, the way to live right is to recognize that killing a disabled infant is not like killing a real person. Why? Because they're not as smart as you, Peter? Because they don't help society out as much as you think they should? Because they don't run fast enough to win a gold medal? Because they can't swim far enough to be in a triathlon? Why is killing a disabled infant not like killing a person, but killing a regular infant would be? Well, a regular infant would help society, and a regular infant could do this and that. Hold on just a second. So you're saying that a person is only as valuable as they are beneficial to society. Yeah. And you're saying that if there was a dog or a pig and it would benefit society more than a disabled infant, then that'd be all right to keep that one and kill the disabled infant. Yeah. Why? Well, because you've rejected the idea of God, which means you reject the idea of inherent human values, and it means you make decisions based on an animalistic instinct type idea. And there's no hope for it. That's the only way you can make a decision because if you say this is morally right, well, who says? Where's that come from? Atheism cannot make morally objective statements. Now, when you go to Psalm 14, verse 1, the Bible says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But many of us stop right there. We don't read the next few verses that say they are corrupt, they have done abominable things. There is none who does good, no, not one. What the text is trying to help us understand there, I believe, is that once you get rid of the idea of God, then every behavior that follows logically from that false conclusion, there is no God, is an immoral behavior that has no understanding of real human value and spiritual justice, etc. And so when you reject the idea of God, then what follows is, hey, killing disabled infants really is not like killing a person at all. Now, this is heavy stuff. This is not stuff that after you get done with the lesson, you think, oh, what a, that was, I was so encouraged by that lesson. But you need to know it because if your child goes to a place where they're indoctrinated with the idea that there's no God, then ultimately they are losing the ability to make decisions that are actually moral decisions. And they are then stuck with what Dan Barker has and says, you know, there's nothing right and wrong in and of itself. Every single action, every one, I can think of a situation in which they'd be right, which I find so ironic when they then come to the Bible and accuse God of doing immoral things when they admit they could think of a situation in which every single action in their mind could be right. Continue with me. Now this one... Uh, Work with me just a minute. Don't read from the start up. Look at the very bottom. And read his title of his book, which is Created from Animals, The Moral Implications of Darwinism. Basically, he's saying to his fellow colleagues, hey, you guys might not have thought through what it means 
to be an atheist and a person who believes that you evolved from animals, but I'm going to help you see what the implications are. That's what we're talking about, right? So he says, an infant with severe brain damage, even if it survives for many years, it might not learn to speak, its mental powers may never rise above a primitive level. In fact, its psychological capacities may be markedly inferior to those of a typical rhesus monkey. In that case, moral individualism would see no reason to prefer its life over the monkey's life. You don't keep it alive instead of the monkey. Well, okay, so what do you do then? Some unfortunate humans, perhaps because they've suffered brain damage, they're not rational agents. What are we going to conclude about? Well, the natural conclusion, according to the doctrine we're considering, would be that their status is that of mere animals. And perhaps we should go on to conclude that they may be used as non-human animals are used as laboratory subjects or as food. If I stood before you and said, this is the implication of atheism, you would probably say, no, no, that's not. That's, you're, you're misunderstanding the atheistic idea. That's not really where it would lead. That's, okay, this man was a professor at a very prestigious university in the United States of America who said, I'm going to tell my fellow atheists what we really believe. And what we really believe is there's no God, then people are just animals. And if people are just animals, then you could treat them like that once they lose their value to society. And, well, what do you mean we could treat them like that, James Rogers? Well, I mean, just like, what do you do with animals? You eat them? Do you use them as laboratory subjects? But once you say that a human is an animal and you use animals for food and laboratory subjects, then what can you use people for? But once they've outlived their usefulness to society. Continue with me. This guy, Eric Pianca, stood before in 2006. I don't know if any of you were there. Some of you might have been. The Texas Educators Organization had come. There were about 400 of them. Before his speech, he went to the guy on the camera and said, don't video this. I don't think that most people are ready to hear what I have to say. And he stood before an audience of 400 of the most prestigious high school educators, if I understand it correctly, in the state of Texas. And gave a speech in which he said, I study reptiles, and reptiles are just as valuable as humans, and humans are taking over the planet. And if we're going to have other organisms like the reptiles that I study, if we're going to let them prosper and do well, we're going to have to eliminate a lot of the humans. In fact, he said, not just a lot. We're going to have to eliminate about 90% of them. And so what I'd suggest to you is that we come up with some way to kill 9 out of 10 humans. And they said, well, how would we do that? He said, if we had some type of airborne Ebola-type virus that would be very lethal and deadly, that would kill people in, say, 3 to 5 days, and that somehow then after that would no longer pose a threat, then we need to release that on humanity basically and kill 90% of all the humans because humans are just like any other animal and if you happen to be in a state like Texas and somebody introduced prairie dogs and prairie dogs were taking over the rest of the population and you had across the state millions of prairie dogs that were causing other organisms to be extinct you'd find some way to get rid of those. What do you think about a man that stands before an audience of 400 of his peers and explains to them that out of that 400, 
oh, about 375 of them, uh, 360, 360 of them need to die. And, and their kids. You would hope that the people who were in charge of this event would have gotten up and said, hey, we want to distance ourselves from that ridiculous idea. There's no possible way that that can be moral. We know that and explained the problems with it. They didn't. In fact, a standing ovation. Eric Pianca got. And as you looked at the students who were there in the audience writing on their Facebook posts and various things, they said, you know what, he's a crazy thinker. He's basically advocating for the death of 90% of all human population and at the risk of sounding just as crazy, I have to agree with him. What do you think a student who watches the Texas Scientist of the Year get the most prestigious, prestigious scientific award in the entire state who stands up and says we need to kill 90% of the human population and the student sitting in the audience thinking, great idea. Where do you think that leads? Oh no, Dr. Pianca might not take any action on that. But do you think that idea will be put into practice by somebody? Absolutely, positively. The fact of the matter is, the implications of unbelief are for a society that has no moral compass. When you have people that don't have a concept of a soul or of future retribution, of anything that will happen after this life, when you have a group of people that reject the idea that humans are special and different, but you get a liberal Missouri that totally collapses into moral chaos. When you have a group of people that say, we're made in the image and likeness of God, this is a from the up, down. God created us in his image and we as image bearers are bound to respect all other image bearers and we are bound to follow the teachings of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who infused respect for everybody through his teachings, you get the best possible society that you can have. The fruits of atheism are extremely bitter. The fruits of Christianity are extremely, extremely sweet. Let's make sure that we as Christians are not just saying we're Christians, but are putting our ideas into practice. Because when we do, the world will recognize that what we have going is very different. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Look forward to a period of worship with you and one more lesson on giving our children a defensible faith. And appreciate many of you who the faces I've seen this morning have been here all weekend. Thank you for your participation. Thank you for being a part of it and for all that you've done to advertise this event, all that you've done to have every kind of coffee and creamer and everything that you have out there. Uh, I'm, I'm a coffee fan, and you guys have just been so kind to me and to all of the visitors that have come, and I really do appreciate it.